When people said, Jesus from Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? And yet Jesus walked through Nazareth and it is today world renowned. In his first miracle, Jesus touched water and he turned it into wine. He touched lepers and they were cleansed. He touched the blind and they became an anthem of his power. He touched 12 ragamuffin misfits and he turned them into world-changing apostles. He touched two pieces of wood and three nails and he turned them into the means of salvation for an entire world. And when you place your faith in Christ and he touches you with his spirit, you become his righteousness. And so we've learned that Jesus is our righteousness. When I was a kid in church, the worship pastor sang a song. And I love this song. It talked about an auctioneer. And at this particular auction, an auctioneer was the last item up for bid. And he held it up and it was battered and scarred. And he said, one give me one dollar, he'll give me two. Two dollars, he'll give me three. Three dollars twice, that's a good price. Who's got a bid for me? Nobody budged. But then at the back of the crowd, a gray-haired man, he stepped forward, he picked up that old uh, broken and battered violin, he, he, he blew the dust, he tightened up some strings, and the song says, and he played out a melody pure and sweet, sweet as the angels sing. And then the auctioneer said, one give me 1,000, who'll make it two? 2,000, who'll make it three? 3,000 twice, that's a good price. Who's got a bid for me? And the people said, what made the change? We don't understand. And the auctioneer stopped and he said with a smile, it was the touch of the master's hand. God is righteous. And the most extravagant gift of salvation is that He becomes our righteousness. Zechariah chapter 33, verse 1 through 5, we see this is a, um, or yes, Zechariah chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 6. And we see that this is a very dismal um, chapter. This isn't necessarily the, the, the book that you would go to if you really want to be encouraged And we see that the religious leaders in this particular day were guilty of perpetuating two great lies. The same two great lies that religious leaders are perpetuating today. Now, I I know that if you look at the news and you read the papers, that you're probably concerned for our nation because we know there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of spinning, a lot of shifting of the truth. And it's difficult to discern what's true and what's not. And that, as a result, is creating a great deal of chaos and confusion across our country. But the two greatest lies being perpetuated across our country are the same two lies that were perpetuated in Jeremiah's day. The first great lie is this. You're not that bad. You can do good enough in order to earn your way to heaven. You can do enough good so that you're acceptable to God and you can have a relationship with God and you'll one day go to heaven. You're not that bad. And the bad that you've done isn't that bad. And the good that you've done is really pretty good. And the second great lie that was being perpetuated by the religious community in Jeremiah's day in the same 
Second lie that's perpetuated in our day today is that God will somehow diminish His standard in order to have a relationship with sinful people like us. These are two enormous lies that are being perpetuated today. The first, the, the first lie perpetuated from the religious community is that you can be good enough and your bad isn't that bad. And the second great lie is, okay, if you can't be good enough and your bad isn't that bad, then God will reduce His standard to have a relationship with you. And reality is... We can never do enough good to be made right with God because the Bible says our best, our righteousness, is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. And God can no more diminish His standard as a holy God to have a relationship with sinful man than the sun can cease to be hot or water can cease to be wet or the sky can cease to be high. God is holy, that is intrinsic in who He is, and He cannot diminish His holiness to have a relationship with sinful people. And so look at these two lies that are being peddled in Jeremiah's day and our day. You're not that bad. Lie number one. Lie number two. God will diminish His standard. He'll sort of sweep your bad under the rug and kind of wink and say, oh, well, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. They're just humans. I shouldn't expect that much from them anyway. Come on into heaven and let's go ahead and have a relationship. And both are lies. We can never be good enough to have a relationship with Christ and God will never reduce His righteous, holy standard to have a relationship with sinners. Okay, well, thank you all for coming out to Hope Works today. What despairing news, isn't it? That's why the gospel is called good news, because the darker the night, the brighter the stars. And the gospel is such good news because it's against the backdrop of this bad news that we can never do enough good to be good enough, and God will never reduce His holy, righteous standard. Thus, the name of God that we learn today. God is Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. In the midst of this dismal news, Jeremiah the prophet says... In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. The Lord is our righteousness. Before this verse in verse 5, there's a prophecy that there will be a Messiah born, a branch of David. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, He will be our righteousness. In other words, we can receive the touch of the Master's hand so that battered and scarred violins like us will become priceless in His sight. So that... Our souls are water turned into to, to wine. We have been forgiven and made whole and clothed in His very righteousness. Now, three facts about this name of God, uh, Jehovah Sitkanu, Yahweh righteousness. The Lord is not only righteous, but this is the good news of the gospel. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, get this about the gospel. The gospel forgives sinners and clothes them with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now the righteousness of God is revealed by God all throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 5, we see that Isaiah sees God and His holiness high and lifted up. And he doesn't say, wow, God. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. I just saw the holy God high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 5. He says, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've just seen the, seen the Lord of hosts. 
And all the seraph are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. He is righteous. He is otherly. And Isaiah doesn't say, wow, God. He says, woe is me. I am a sinner. I can never, the best of the best, mind you, Isaiah, I can never be good enough. And God in His holiness will never reduce His standard. And yet, we see an Old Testament appearance of the gospel, the effect of the gospel. Because Jehovah, Jehovah Sitkinu, Yahweh righteousness touches Isaiah with his own righteousness as a gift. We see that an angel in Isaiah 61 takes a tongue from the altar with a hot coal from the altar. The altar, it's a picture of the altar of Christ, the cross of Christ. And this hot coal is a picture of the Spirit. And he touches Isaiah and then he is cleansed. You see, this is a picture of the gospel. God's righteousness being imputed to us. This is an important phrase. God's righteousness being imputed. What does the word imputed mean? Do you know what amputated means? Amputated means cut off, right? Well, imputed is the opposite of amputated. Am- imputed means decreed, declared. It's a, it's a legal term. It means authorized. It means commissioned or it means attached. Throughout the Old Testament, God the Father reveals Himself as holy. He's the righteous one. And we're going to see that through Jesus Christ, He will impute, He will attach His righteousness to us. So throughout the Old Testament, Jehovah Sidkenu, Yahweh, righteousness is revealed by God the Father. And throughout the New Testament, Jehovah Sidkenu, Yahweh, righteousness is revealed by God the Son. In John chapter 8, verse 46, people looked at Jesus and they tried to accuse him of sin. And Jesus said, which one of you convicts me of sin? None of them. If you guys have been around here long enough, you know that I'm imperfect. Y'all stop nodding your head so in such agreement. But Jesus said, Which of you can convict me of sin? Nobody. Jesus lived perfectly righteous. And we're going to see that we are grateful for the righteousness of God. We are grateful for the death of Jesus on the cross, as we should be. But I don't believe that we're nearly grateful enough for the righteous life that Jesus lived because he lived that righteous life for us. Why did, if the, 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 the price for, for the sins of the world is death, why didn't God the Father just send Jesus to earth and go immediately to the cross and get it done with? Because Jesus came not just to die on the cross for us, He also came to live perfectly righteous and fulfill the law of God for us. So let's listen to the righteous life. Let's read about the righteous life and consider the righteous life that Jesus lived. Listen to this. Jesus never offended against the commands of the just one. From his eye there was never the flash of fire of undeserved anger. Charles Spurgeon writes. And Spurgeon goes on to say, On his lip, this is the 33 years he lived here, And by the way, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And be certain, he was tempted infinitely more than any of us ever were. 
and yet he didn't sin once. He not only did the right thing every time, but he did the right thing for the right reason every single time. On his lip, there never did hang the unjust word. His heart was never stirred by the breath of sin or the taint of iniquity. In the secret of his reigns, no fault was hidden. In his understanding was no defect. In his judgment, no error. In his miracles, there was no ostination. Not an ounce of pride in his miracles. In him, there was indeed no guile, no deceit. His powers being ruled by his understanding. All of them acted and co-acted to perfection's very self. So that never was there any flaw of omission or stain of commission. What a statement. In Christ, never was there a flaw of omission or a stain of commission. The law consists of in this first. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. He did so. It was his meat and his drink to do the will of him that sent him. Never man spent himself as Christ. Hunger and thirst and nakedness were nothing to him, nor death itself, if he might be so baptized with the baptism wherewith he must be baptized and drink the cup which his father had set before him. The law consists also in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In all he did, and in all he suffered, he more than fulfilled the precept. For he saved, him, for he saved others himself he could not save. He exhausted the utmost resources of love and the deep devotion and self-sacrificing of loving. He loved man better than his own life. He would sooner be spit upon than man should be cast into the flames of hell and sooner yield up the ghost in agony that cannot be described than that the souls his father gave him should be cast away. He carried out the law, then I say to the very letter, he spelled it out, its mystic syllables, and verily he magnified it and he made it honorable. He loved the Lord his God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus Christ was righteousness impersonated. Which of you convicts me of sin? He says justly. 2,000 years have passed since then, and blasphemy itself has not been able to charge him with fault. Christ lived in righteousness so that he could be our righteousness. The gift of salvation, yes, is our sins being forgiven. Awesome. Eternally more awesome. The gift of salvation is that we are clothed in the very righteousness of God himself. When you became a Christian, God sees you as righteous as your sweet grandmother who never stopped praying for you. But even more, when you became a Christian, God the Father sees you as righteous as that fiery evangelist known for his integrity, Billy Graham. But even more, when you became a Christian, God the Father sees you as righteous and pure as that saint who gave her life for the poor in Calcutta, Mother Teresa. But even more, when you became a Christian, God the Father looks at you and sees you as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. This is the gift of salvation. The forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So that when you pray as a follower of Christ, you can pray with the same boldness and authority as if you had never sinned because Christ has never sinned for you. 
When you worship, you can do it with abandonment and freedom as if you have upheld the righteous law perfectly because Christ has upheld the righteous law perfectly for you. The gift of salvation is the gift of sins being forgiven. Not only that, the gift of salvation is the gift that you are clothed in the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So that when you look at yourself in the mirror, as we saw in that skit during, this ch- during the kids' segment earlier, we don't look at ourselves as where we've been, what we've done, what's been said about us, or what's been done to us. But rather... The greatest tool in discipleship, the greatest tool in living out your calling is to grow to see yourself the way that Jesus Christ sees you. And this is in his own righteousness, clothing you. This is the gift of salvation. In Zechariah chapter 31, verse 1 through 5, we have a sneak peek of the gospel in the Old Testament when Joshua the high priest is standing before the throne of God and Satan is standing beside him accusing him. And this is what Satan does. He accuses night and day. He never stops accusing. And then, as an Old Testament appearance of the gospel, the prophet says, remove those tattered clothes that represent a sinful life. Take them off of him and instead clothe him with the garments of righteousness. The book of Isaiah is a prophecy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its effect upon our soul. God calls the garments of salvation, wedding garments, bridal garments. They're garments that we are clothed in. It's the righteousness of Christ himself so that we have great joy and great hope. Throughout the Old Testament... Jehovah Sitkenu is revealed by God the Father. Throughout the New Testament, Jehovah Sitkenu is revealed by God the Son. And today, through the Holy Spirit, God's righteousness is applied to your heart. Let's just look at what this means in closing. One, this means that you have a new history. There's only one event in your past that can define who you are. And it has nothing to do with what you've done and everything to do with what God has done through the cross of Christ. And this event cries out to you, I love you and I forgive you and you are my righteousness. As David grew to understand his history through the cross of Christ, looking forward into the New Testament, David cries in Psalm chapter 32, verse 5, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven and whom the Lord forgives all of his iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of all my sins. So, we have a new history in Christ Jesus. Only one event in your past can define you. And it's the cross of Christ. And it says you're loved, you're chosen, you're called, you're forgiven, you're righteous. Second, we not only have a new history through the cross of Christ, but we also have a new identity through the cross of Christ. And our identity is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a Christian, you have not been perfect practically on a daily basis. But as a Christian, you are perfect positionally in Christ Jesus. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, that you are perfect in Christ Jesus. This is who we are. This is our identity. Do not feel in your soul, do you not feel in your soul that there is no perfection in you? 
Does not each day teach you that? Every tear which trickles from your eyes weeps in perfection. Every harsh word which, profe- which proceeds from your lips mutters in perfection. However, through Christ, you are the perfection of Christ Jesus himself. This is your identity. There's two books. This first book is your life. It's a thick book with many pages because every page is a moment in your life. Pretty thick book, isn't it? And in each of these moments, there is a mark every time you've sinned. Sins of commission, things that you did that you should have done. Things of omission, things you should have done that you didn't do. In this book, there's a mark, 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 mark for every sin. It started out blank, but it's marked up for every sin. How many marks does your book have? Mine from beginning to end is marked. There's another book. It's Jesus Christ. Every moment, a mark for every sin. Every moment, a mark for every sin of commission. Every moment, a mark for every sin of omission. Every moment, a mark for every moment. Christ not uphold the righteousness of God perfectly when he walked this earth for 33 years. And in Jesus' book, there are zero marks. The extravagance of salvation is that when Jesus was on the cross, your book came onto Christ. And when Jesus died, he died for your sins. And the moment you trust in Christ's work for you on the cross, his book applies to you. So that your sins are forgiven when Christ died on the cross and through the application of the Holy Spirit when you place your faith in his work for you, you become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him you might become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Third, application of Christ's righteousness in practical terms. You have a new history. You have a new identity. Thirdly, you have a new destiny. Imagine with me that you live in a shack. It's a beat-down shack. When it rains outside, it rains inside. When the wind blows outside, the wind blows inside. And it's a cold day, and imagine that there you are on this cold day in this shack, huddled in the corner with your knees to your chest, rocking back and forth, trying to find warmth. You're thinking how miserable your reality is, and how unchangeable it is. And about that moment, your landlord just walks in, and you're grieved, and your heart just sinks because you know that he's here for for back pay, and he's about to evict you. And there you are in the corner, and then this landlord walks over to the window, and he looks out the window for some time, and then he motions for you to stand beside him. So you come and you stand beside him. And then your eye catches what his eye is staring at. And it's a mansion nestled on the side of a mountain beside a beautiful scene on the ocean. It looks like something out of Lifestyles for the Rich and Famous. Many windows, many chimneys, a, a, a driveway that just wraps around a cascading water fountain. It is beautiful. And the landlord says, you see it? And you say yes. And he says, that's your new home. And your first thought is, that's ridiculous. I can't even afford this shack, much less that. And as if he could read your thoughts, he says, I know. It's my gift to you. 
That's why it's called grace. And on the basis of grace, what we do not deserve. And in the same way, the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims that Jesus walks into our sin-filled life and he says, I'm going to tear down your past and I'm going to give you a new identity and a new future, a new destiny authored by your new identity because you are clothed in my righteousness. And we look at the horizon that's authored by the righteousness of Christ Jesus, and we say, but I, I, I don't deserve that. I, I don't deserve that. Exactly. That's why it's called grace. On the basis of His gift to you and not what you've achieved. Grace. Unmerited favor. What Jesus did for you on the cross. That which you can never achieve, that which you can never deserve. Grace disengages you from your moral failures and realigns you to His original design for your life. Grace delivers you from the sorrow that you do deserve and lavishes you with inconceivable blessings that you don't deserve. Before Christ, guilt had a very real place in your life. Guilt owned you. Guilt condemned you. Guilt separated you from God. Why? You are guilty. But when Christ was invited into your life, everything changes. Guilt no longer holds a place in your life. Guilt is no longer yours to bear. All of your guilt was nailed to the cross. Jesus became guilty so that you could be innocent. God doesn't want you to intermingle. A little grace with a little guilt. This does not glorify God. I'll be a Christian, but also carry behind a weight of guilt and regret and remorse. This does not glorify God. Grace and guilt, they're mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. Grace and guilt war against one another. Grace is liberating. Guilt demobilizing. Grace fills our heart with exciting aspiration. Guilt fills our heart with belittling condemnation. Grace energizes you. Guilt demoralizes you. Grace links you to every good gift from above. Guilt chains us to our past. We either embrace grace, the quality of our life appreciates, and we grow in our relationship with Christ, or we embrace guilt, the quality of our life depreciates, and we stagnate. There's no reason to stay a moment longer in a shack of past sorrows. You've been given a new history. You've been given a new identity. You've been given a new destiny. You've been given a new ministry. All authored by the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that has clothed you. So the question is, how do we apply this righteousness? How do we receive this righteousness? In closing, let's go to chapter uh, Romans, the fourth chapter of Romans, and we see that the Apostle Paul in an prosecuting attorney-like fashion. He prosecutes the false religions, the two great lies, that there's something you can do to earn this righteousness. And since you can't do anything to earn this righteousness, God must reduce His standards to accept you and your unrighteousness. Both are lies. There is never anything we can do to earn the righteousness of Christ, and God will never diminish His standard. Salvation was bought for us, won for us on the cross when Jesus died for our sins and through faith in what Jesus did for us, the Holy Spirit applies Christ's own righteousness into our lives. This is who we are in Christ. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says, 
How do you receive this righteousness? Can you work for it? Not a chance. Can you earn it? Not a chance. Can you do enough good? Not a chance. Can you resist enough bad? Never. And he says, let's go back to the beginning. In the New Testament, Romans 4, he says, let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. God's having a conversation with his man Abraham. And he says, look, you're discouraged. Count the stars if you can. You can't. So shall your offspring be. I'm going to bless the nations of the world through you. It's an Old Testament messianic promise. Abraham believed. He didn't work. He didn't achieve. He didn't strive. He believed. And God counted to him as righteousness. Abraham experienced Jehovah Sitkinu. Abraham experienced Yahweh, our righteousness. Abraham was clothed in the very righteousness of God the moment he believed. And knowing that we're all legalists to the core and we want to try to still earn what can only be received, Abraham goes on to, to, to finalize his argument. Paul goes on to finalize his argument in Romans 4. He says, just, just, just think about this for a moment. At what point was Abraham counted righteous by God? Was it before his work of circumcision? Or after? He says it wasn't after. It was before. In other words, before any works, before any church attendance, before any good deeds, before resisting any temptation, before any confirmation classes, before any baptism, Abraham simply believed and he was clothed in the righteousness of God. And that is our salvation as well. We believe when Jesus died on the cross, so did our sins. And when we trust what Jesus did for us on the cross, His very righteousness is applied to us. Therefore, we worship, we pray, we love, we praise, we, we reach out to a lost and dying world as if we have upheld the law perfectly because Jesus upheld the perfection of the law for us. This is something that we should rejoice about and this is your identity in Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? And in closing, we have a nation that has bought into the lie that the nation in Jeremiah's day bought into, that their bad really isn't that bad, and God's good really isn't that good, and there's not a need for a Redeemer. There's not a need for a sacrifice. There's not a need for a Savior. Ah, my bad's not that bad, and his good isn't that good. I don't need Jesus Christ. So we have a nation that's unrepented. The foundations are being destroyed, and our nation is being rocked, perhaps shaken to its core and on the way to imploding, irrevocably imploding. Unless there's a national conviction of sin, unless there's a national turning to Christ, until a nation stops saying, I'm not that bad and God's good isn't that good, so I really don't need a Savior. And that's exactly where our nation is, 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 in, is in shambles. Because we're no different than Jeremiah's nation in his day. My bad's not that bad and God's good isn't that good, so who cares about Jesus? when a spirit of conviction comes over you, you say, a lost nation says like they did in 
in the book of Acts, when Paul and Peter preached, they were cut with conviction. And instead of saying, my bad's not that bad and God's good isn't that good, they start crying out, what must I do to be saved? The only hope for the United States of America is to have a sense of conviction that they are sinners and God is holy and we start crying out for a Savior named Jesus Christ. Only through conviction will we repent as a nation and turn to God. And until we do that, our nation will continue to be shaken until it implodes. But we have a promise. If we turn now, there's hope. You know, uh, one of the names of God that has encouraged me was, you know, when we were looking at Gideon. And, you know, we realized that God doesn't look for ability. He looks for availability. And if you make yourself able available, God will make you able. And through that, I'm just like saying, you know, I'm like Gideon. I'm nothing, but I know, God, you're everything. I'm nobody, but I know somebody. Use me, God, use me. So I've been praying that. You know, as I watch the news, I say, I'm nobody, but I know somebody. Use me, God, use me. And having a deeper and deeper burden that our nation would come to a place of repentance. Realizing that their goodness isn't all that, and God's is, and they need a Savior. They need that conviction. So at any rate, the Lord just put it on my heart to, uh, to drive down to Austin this Friday and to stand on the steps of the state capitol and just go live. And I would like for you to join me live on Facebook. And I, I, I'm praying that a thousand people join us as we pray for our nation and as we pray for repentance. Because until then, any election, any Supreme Court justices is only going to be legislating morality and God wants our heart to be changed. And this is when the people realize that they're sinners and God is holy and they need a Savior and they repent and cry out to Christ. Repentance and turning to Christ is our only hope. So I ask that you join me Friday, 8 p.m. Just jump on my Facebook page. Join me Friday, 8 p.m. And I ask that you share with everyone. Just share it with everyone. And, and I'm just praying that a thousand people jump on with us and have sincere repentance. Would, would you do that? Would you join me Friday? Would you share it with everybody? Thank you. But let's not wait till Friday to repent. Let's repent now. Let's come down to the altar and cry out to Jesus to cleanse us. And he says, just like he told the leper who cried out for cleansing, I am willing. Let's come kneel before Christ and cry for cleansing. And Jesus said, you are cleansed. Your relationship is restored. You are the righteousness of God. This is your position. Why do we, if we're positionally the righteousness of Christ, have to repent on a daily basis? Because our relationship fluctuates. Just like your relationship with your spouse or parents or siblings fluctuate. But your position is the same. You're married. Your position is the same. You're a child. Your position is the same. You're a sibling. Our position in Christ, we are His righteousness. Which is why the door is always open for us to freely come and get our relationship with Christ 
right. So let's do that right now. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would just help us to see ourselves the way you see us as the righteousness of God. And we pray that that would play out practically as we live for you and we walk in freedom and we love you with all of our heart and we love others as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are open and let's respond with worship.